Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Sour Heart from our 2018 programme. Praised as ingenious by the New Yorker for its technical artistry with an unfettered emotional directness, Jenny Zhang's debut short story collection Sour Heart interrogates the immigrant experience in eight linked stories told from the perspective of a first-generation Chinese-American girl living in New York. And it was the first acquisition of Lena Dunham's publishing imprint, Lenny Books. It follows poetry, essays, and the chapbook, Hags, all of which have contributed to marking Zhang out as one of her generation's most provocative voices. She's in conversation with Rosabel Tan. We hope you enjoy listening. Please join me in welcoming Jenny Zhang. <laughs> Thank you. So I wanted to start with Sour Heart. The narrators in Sour Heart are all young. A lot of them are on the cusp of puberty and I guess in that curious position of feeling like they have knowledge but not necessarily understanding yet. What attracted and challenged you about writing about that age? Mm. Thank you for that amazing <laughs> introduction. I thought it would be very weirdly formal, like I was <laughs> pretending you weren't here. <laughs> it's really great. Um, yeah, so um, they are th the narrators of these seven interconnected um, short stories. I guess they're not short, they're really long, long stories. Um, they're, all, um, they're all children, although actually um, they're, they're not children, when they're telling the stories, they're looking back retrospectively um, and um, telling stories about their childhood and about that time, as you said, where um, they're on the cusp of adolescence. Um, and I think I was drawn to that because I think the, the period of time that a young girl gets to be innocent, um, it, it's so short and even shorter if you're... Um, a young girl of color, um, because that period of time when um, your body is just like, um, I don't know, just a functional vessel, like a thing that gets you from point A to point B, a thing that you walk from school to home um, before someone makes you aware of what else it is. Um, it's, it's so, so brief. Um, and, you know, I, I have a lot of Obviously, um, I have a lot of romantic feelings about it um, and a lot of nostalgic feelings about it. And probably these feelings have, in some ways, warped the actual reality of my childhood. Um, but I wanted to write about that period of time before someone makes that comment about your body, about your identity, um, that you can't unforget, that you can't forget. Did I just uh, double negative the wrong... Yeah idea um, that you <laughs> that you can't um, unhear um, and for these girls um, you know it's not like they you know they're they're all immigrants um, they're all Chinese American girls and it's not like they even know what they don't know what Asian is when they're five years old they don't know what being an immigrant is they don't know what these racial slurs mean they don't know um, the implications of having breasts of not having breasts of having a certain kind of body not having a certain kind of body um, but they are exposed to 
a world and people in that world who are making them aware of that. And so I just thought that was a really kind of ripe um, period of time for for literature. And, you know, there's so many books about boyhood and mm. about a loss of innocence for young boys. And those books are, they're canon. They're part of the English canon, um, you know, books by J.D. Salinger and James Joyce. Um, and sometimes I find that when you write about the same things, but for um, young girls, it's not considered serious. It's, it's considered minor. It's considered trivial. It's considered young adult which is a great genre, and I love that genre, but, um, but I don't think that I'm writing, I, w I was writing stories um, for adults looking back on a period of time. Yeah. yeah. I might take my earring off because it's like making little jiggly noises. Is oh, that weird? I'm gonna take it off. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay. Yeah. It was so pretty <laughs> <laughs> while it lasted. It's interesting that thing as well about, I was trying to think of where it's at in terms of other, other fiction about young girls, and I did keep coming back to how it wasn't young adult fiction and how mm -hmm. so many of the books that you read as a, particularly a young woman maybe growing up in the 90s, it's such a sanitized version of adolescence, mm -hmm. which I found really refreshing with your book. Um, you mentioned before the idea of being on the cusp before you really understand what it means to be Asian or mm. an immigrant or any mm -hmm. of those labels when you're a kid, it just doesn't matter. All you're focused on is snacks and TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but one thing I really did love about Sour Heart is that, you know, for such a long time it felt like immigrant fiction, if you want to give that label, and specifically immigrant fiction about Asian immigrants was kind of descended from this long line of stereotypes. Mm. And particularly this sort of singular story of the struggle and the mm. hard-earned success, like, you know, like immigrant angels trying to make it in the big white world. <laughs> um, and I really love that Sour Heart uh, resists that as a primary mm. narrative. And I'm curious, this is a very long-winded question, uh, about the experiences that led you to become aware of those narratives? Mm, yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think one of the things, um, to um, di diverge a little bit, but one of the things that I, like I loved reading a lot of those um, sort of foundational texts of whatever you would call immigrant literature or, um, literature about Chinese American immigrants. Um, like I, I loved reading the Joylet Club, and I thought it was um, an amazing book when I read it in like ninth grade or whatever. Um, uh, but one thing I started noticing the more I read those texts, the more I I, I realized that there was almost I don't know how to put this, but it felt like there was a white fetish for the pain of immigrants who had come over to America. And also there was this fetish for um, the second generation children who had kind of suffered blaming their first generation parents mm -hmm. for their suffering. And I, I think if you read the stories in Sour Heart, um, 
it's not necessary. I mean, I wanted to make sure that also the American dream was blamed because I think the American dream is bullshit. Um, I think it's only caused so much harm because it's a lie and it's a lie um, that I don't know, like has never worked for um, me or my family or like anyone in my community. Um, and I felt like also just in my life um, as I've never felt as let down by my family or my parents as I have felt let down by white American culture, by the faux promises of the American dream that anyone can make it, that this is a land of like tolerance and love and understanding. Like that is ultimately what has let me down and what has produced some of the most disturbing experiences and encounters in my life. And so, uh, and I, I just felt like I wanted to, not that I was thinking about that when I was writing, but because that was part of my experience, it must have filtered into these stories um, in deep, deep ways. And it's also the disappointment. I mean, it's like I came to America and I tried so hard to love it and be loved by it. And I tried for so long to embrace it with open arms and and there's only so much abuse you can take before you kind of are like, okay, like I'm gonna have to have I'm gonna have to have boundaries with this, you know, bitch of a country. Um, <laughs> and um and and so now that that's and that's my personal um, relationship. I mean, it, it's it is still my country, and I, I do have, I, I do love it, but I also like know it, and I, I don't think anyone who loves someone that they know deeply um, has a love that is not complex and not fraught and not you know full of conflict and and issues. I'm sorry. I have such a soft voice. I'll try to speak louder. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I'll also try and speak loudly. I know that I mumble. Um, I know that you wrote these stories, you started writing these stories quite a long time ago. So you mm -hmm. wrote um, The Evolution of My Brother when you were 19, mm -hmm. and I think you wrote your last story in the collection when you were 25. Yeah. And I know that you... Yes. <laughs> Is that... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, and you've mentioned in interviews that you returned to these stories and, in some cases, rewrote them quite drastically. Mm. And I was quite interested in that because I guess that's you having a conversation with your younger writerly self. And so I was curious about what that conversation was that you were having. Yeah, um, so it was a lot of... It's, it's, it's a lot of going back and seeing um, like a fossil of like who I used to be and who I was at that point. And it was a lot of like re-encountering the limits of what I knew, the limits of, you know, the extent of my wisdom at whatever age. Um, the, the first story I ever wrote was when I was 19 and it was called, it is called The Evolution of My Brother and it's a story about these siblings who have an extremely um, intense, 
codependent relationship. Um, it's the older sibling is um, this girl named Jenny, and the younger sibling is um, a, a, the, her younger brother, who's nine years younger. And um, it was one of the first stories that I wrote that I was really proud of after I wrote it. Um, I felt like I wasn't embarrassed. I, I loved it. Um, and I, I was just really happy with it. And I remember that other students um, in my class really liked it too, but there was this one student who I really, really admired and I really took his criticism seriously. And he had this criticism that was like, um, well, um, you know, this is a great story, but we never find out what the younger brother's personality is like. He, you know, we don't, like, I wouldn't really know what his sense of humor is. I don't know, like, who he is outside of his relationship to the sister. We only know him through her lens and how he relates to her. And I was like, uh, yeah, that's the point. Um, <laughs> sounds like I succeeded. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was so, like, you know, and it, and it clearly bothered me because I still remember it to this day, and I remembered it the day that I went back to it almost more than 10 years later and started revising it. Um, and that's when I knew it was actually really good criticism. And I realized that um, at the time, I, I didn't know, you know, I have a younger brother and like I had only thought of him as my brother and I hadn't thought of his life um, independent of me because I just didn't think about him um, except as he related to me. And I realized that, you know, I'm not a protagonist in other people's lives. Um, and I'm not a protagonist in people who are protagonists in my life or a main character in my life. And, and for all that I had thought about our relationship or what I meant to him or what he meant to me, it's quite possible that he didn't think about me that way. And that um, it's also extremely, you know, in the story, the sister worries that she's fucked him up, like fucked up her younger brother. And, and actually I realized when I was older, that's a very narcissistic thing to, to believe that you are responsible for destroying someone's life. Um, and it's, and it, was, it was amazing for me to go back and realize how limited that thinking was and how limited my thinking was um, and it, it, it was, it was, it was great to see how simple-minded I was at age 19, um, because it, it meant hopefully that I've, like, grown a bit, and, um, and it's not just, you know, it's not just revision, but it really is, like, revisioning, um, and having, hopefully, a, a new vision of, of, of the world, or not a new one, but a growing vision of the world. And I, I mean, I guess that kind of ties in with the way that you portray familial love in the book, which is so complex and so beautiful. You know, there are times when that love feels quite suffocating and laden with the guilt or, or recognition of all the sacrifice that, mm. you know, for example, your parents have made for you, but it's also this very sweet and unconditional and beautiful love too and so mm. I'm kind of um, interested because you know this idea of you going back and revisioning um, for example the evolution of my brother and that changing the way you thought about family mm. were there other ways in which writing these stories changed the way you thought about family in general your family 
Mm, yeah. I mean, it. I think I started thinking also about lineage more as I was writing these stories and rewriting them and this idea of like what is inherited but also what happens when there are violent breaks in the lineage um, whether through like war or some kind of devastation or through migration um, or through um, displacement and, and such and um, also what happens when you know, like, I, I started to think about the ways in which, like, I, I don't know how to explain this, but I, I get, I, I have this kind of, like, secret language in some ways with my parents because it's a mix of Chinese and English, but it's also um, a really specific mix of Chinese and, and English. Um, one that not everyone who is bilingual in Chinese and English speak, um, because it really is a language of three. It's not really appropriate in the outside world. It, it only concerns the things that the three of us are interested in. And I think about how, like in a sense, like that's a dying language. Like when, when, when I, if I have a child, they're not going to be able to speak that language. I can't impart that language to them. Like, I am the last bearer of that language. I'm the last practitioner of that language. And so that's like the end of the line. And like so much personality and memory and, and there's so much that's like, it, language isn't just language, it's also like, you know, entire, exp I've had certain experiences only in this very specific language. Um, and I've had a whole set of other experiences in English or a whole set of other experiences in pure Chinese or whatever. So it, it made me think of like, I mean, that's also part of identity formation and, and familial, um, sorry, I can feel myself getting softer again, and familial, um, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, identity. Um, and <laughs> so, sorry, the the, the, the effort of speaking loudly has made me forget what I was saying. I'm sorry. I, I think I'm just going to stop speaking at this point and you can ask your next question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to change the subject a little mm -hmm. bit too. Um, throughout all the, I guess, interviews and reviews and talks that have surrounded Sour Heart, mm. um, I've found it quite curious the way the work starts to get mythologized a little bit and there are certain aspects of it that are focused on more than others and in, in some ways, you know, in the same way that these girls in the book struggle with their identity being forced upon them by other people. Mm. Um, it sometimes felt, reading some of your interviews and reviews, that maybe there were aspects of the book's identity that were that it was getting shoehorned into. Well, not shoehorned into, yes. but it was becoming more prominent than other aspects of Definitely. it. Definitely. And, yeah, I just wondered about your experience about that and of that and whether there was anything that has surprised or frustrated you. Mm. Well, I think whenever you're writing um, a story where there are so few other examples of... Um, th those kinds of stories, or it's a very um, fledgling genre, um, mostly do two like things, like 
racism and stuff like that. Um, I think whenever you are one of a few writing about something, um, and especially if um, the, the literary, um, the world of literary critics have, have deemed you a, a breakout or, um, you know, someone who has some sort of marginalized identity that isn't normally represented in the publishing world. I think there's always the tendency um, to want to make your work, especially with fiction, to talk about it as if it were a textbook, as if it were um, not fiction and not art, but that it had some kind of utilitarian purpose, as if I was sort of um, an anthropologist and speaking, um, uh, you know, with the authority of an anthropologist of like my own people. And I think that can be really difficult because I don't think fiction um, is well suited to being studied like a textbook. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's very wrong to do that, actually. Um, and I also think like there's um, a lot of like, I think all, you know, the work also becomes political, which I understand um, it, it becomes inherently political um, regardless of intent, regardless of um, the incredibly not uh, coherent ideology um, that is, is the incredibly non-coherent ideology present in the actual work. Um, and I think that, that really, it, it really scares me um, because I really don't want to be wielded, I don't want my fiction to be wielded ideologically in some kind of like cultural wars. I don't want to be used as a proxy. Um, and I also like don't feel, it's not a compliment at all um, for, you know, reviewers and, and critics to say like a, a book um, like mine is more needed than ever like in this in this political climate, because it implies that um, we only want to hear from the voices of immigrant writers when the lives of immigrants are imperiled, and that's um, that's very disturbing to me. Or it's only important because we found finally found a function for you know this kind of work, and also it. It's just, it's very, it closes down conversations rather than opens it up. Um, and also it's very, I don't know, like I wrote these stories um, so long ago and it's like, also, I don't know, it's, it's, also, it's also very dangerous, I think, to connect these stories about a very specific type of Chinese American immigrants coming to a very specific place and time to what's happening right now to like, you know, uh, undocumented Central American immigrants. Like th those experiences actually are not at all to be conflated. Um, and I don't want someone to read my book and pat themselves on the back for having read it and feel like good about themselves because they've read these stories that have nothing to do with you being a good person for reading it. So <laughs> I think that becomes like a, a, a thread that I keep experiencing over and over again. And I think it's very hard as a writer to not behave the way that the literary world wants you to behave because 
I also have to show gratitude and humility while also showing confidence and um, <laughs> warmth and I don't know, like it's a lot of um, expectation um, and it's a, it, it can be a bit hard to manage. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's so nice. I, I don't even know why. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you've sort of spoken about this before in the past as well, this idea that, you know, you, you would love to be able to be carefree as mm. a writer. And it's just not a realistic ambition because mm. of the identities that you occupy and um, the, what it means to actually be successful as a writer um, in yeah. this climate. And I'm kind of, I guess, you've written, you know, you've written for, you wrote for Ricky for a couple of years and you've written poetry and non-fiction, fiction, mm. TV. So I'm kind of wondering, does the way you... Ex does the way you experience that burden change across the different ways that you write? Yeah, um, I think with poetry, um, one thing, I mean, this is not even super true, but one thing is most, most people don't go into reading a poem being like, yeah, I got this. <laughs> like, I'm gonna master the meaning of this poem um, in a second. Like, most people are very daunted by poetry. They're expecting abstraction. They're not necessarily expecting um, a narrative, a story that they can follow. So I think there is a little more room sometimes to play with poetry. Also, most people don't give a fuck about poetry. <laughs> so <laughs> there's very few people looking at you. Um, and, you know, the less people looking at you, the more you can kind of like wild out of control. Um, and I think with nonfiction, people are looking to be instructed. People are looking often for answers, um, even though I, I think as all good and rigorous readers know, the, the most interesting and incredible nonfiction asks so many more questions than it poses answers. And anyone who is... Um, claiming to know all the answers is just a charlatan. Um, and so, but with nonfiction, I do understand that it is a genre that demands answers, that demands, um, um, you know, research and, 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 and all that. So that is always on my mind. Um, and with fiction, I think that's where it gets really tricky um, because I think the most interesting fiction is, um, I don't know, it, it, it does like, you know, John Keats's idea of negative capability, which is when, you know, a human is able to dwell in, in mystery, in darkness, in, in questions that have, that only lead to more questions, um, when, you know, a person is able to hold to uh, very conflicting ideas in one's mind without exploding like and and I think that is the kind of like fiction that I love um and that I, I try to be able to write as much as I can but um but I also understand that oh like I understand that like I 
will have to, um, I understand that I have to make concessions often. I mean, just wanting, just being, just being able to be read widely means that I have to um, not dumb down some of my ideas, but I have to like translate it for a larger audience. And I don't just mean like a larger like linguistic audience, but like a cultural audience. I mean, you know, I, I understand that like I, I can't just write exactly um, what I want without any regard to being understood. Um, and I understand also like, and maybe I'm preempting a question here, but I understand that like for a lot of people, um, who maybe are not familiar with the kind of characters I'm writing about. Like, my book might be the only book about, um, you know, featuring prominently Chinese-American characters that they are ever reading. Um, and for that reader, I have, you know, I, I feel, I do feel the burden of um, both representing Chinese people, um, you know, with with some amount of dignity and poetry and interest, but I also feel a responsibility to show that like, I'm not writing about provincial things, that um, writing about um, Chinese American girls does not you know, bar me from the universal at all. In fact, I am deeply um, writing about things that are universal um, and those modifiers do not change that. So that's like a responsibility and a burden I feel. And on the same, um, on, on, on the other side, I also understand like this table that I've been allowed to sit at, this room I'm allowed to enter is sometimes so small that like when I sit down, when I go into that room, no one else can. And so like, why do I deserve that? Um, and and if I do deserve that or don't deserve that and, or whatever, if I've been given that, like, it's a lot of pressure because I don't want to do a bad job because then not only if I, do, if I do a bad job, then that becomes an indictment on my identity and people of my identity of, like, well, you see, Chinese-American writers aren't interesting. They are provincial. They're terrible writers. They don't write well. They're not you know, complex, and also then I, it's like I've yap, yap, yapped my voice and no one else can. And like, so that's all swirling in my, you know, completely messed up brain <laughs> all the time. And it's, it's very hard. And I, I try to shut that out when I'm writing because I have to be able to have some peace of mind to write freely. Um, but it always comes back and it always intrudes. And it's such a huge weight. Like, that is more than what so many other, mm -hmm. well, white male writers, for example, mm -hmm. might have to think about. Like, yeah. It takes up so much time. Is It's the worst. It's the worst. Yeah. I was, this is a, ver a very small question, but it's something that I've been thinking about a little bit lately. And um, the idea of the modifier, the way that you define yourself, I feel like I have noticed that very few writers of Asian descent tend to identify themselves as whatever Asian descent they have in, for example, like a writer's festival bio. And yeah. is that something that you think about when you are writing your bio? Because I've, it's not just you, I'm not just pointing things. Because um, I didn't do it either, and I have looked through it, and there are a few others who haven't. And I find, I don't know what I think about it, but I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, 
I, 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 I don't know. I mean, one thing is, and we've like talked about this off screen, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, this idea of, um, you know, I, I, I have a lot of, um, Asian American writer friends, um, and this is earlier, maybe like when we were in college, and we were all kind of coming up together and writing and being really nerdy about writing and being like, yeah, we're going to be writers, and and we would often have these conversations where a lot of my friends were like, well, I don't want to write about my ex identity, like I don't want to write about growing up in with Thai parents or I don't want to write about my Korean mother or my whatever upbringing because it'll be so limiting and like one thing I decided was like that will never be limiting for me and like I get it like it will be seen as limiting it'll be seen as writing simply about yourself about writing about um, whatever stories map on exactly to your identity. I get that that is how it will be seen, and it'll be seen as less imaginative, and it'll be seen as provincial and minor, and it will be, so many modifiers will be slapped onto it, immigrant literature, Asian American literature, minority literature, whatever. But I decided in my mind, it would never be a restriction that I could write about every single thing in the world um, and everything was possible, and there would be nothing that could be that would be limited by writing about Asian American characters, just as I know all writers, all male white writers in the English canon, never felt limited by their protagonists. Um, and their protagonists have modifiers that we simply don't use because we treat those modifiers as invisible and as, as you know, just a, a universal figure. And I was like, I know I won't be allowed to write about Chinese American girls as if they were a universal figure, but in my mind, I will think of them as such because they mm. fucking deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, yeah so special to feel like your experience could be the center of a universe. Yeah. Outside <laughs> of your own universe. Um, okay, I, I don't know if you'll want to answer this question. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, was, it was under my notes about bios, but I wondered if you could talk about your bio on Instagram. Which oh, yeah. What does it say again? Um, Is it something filthy? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Maybe, but Daisy Poet inside a Lucky Pier. Oh, do you all know what a Lucky Pier is? <laughs> um, it's, I, I, I think this is correct, but it's the person, the, the middle person in a threesome. Um, right? That's a Lucky Pier. Getting, pen, getting penetrated and also penetrated? Yes. They are yeah. being... They are the per, it's this and this, you know what I mean? And the person here between that. Um, and um, I, I, actually this is a great, this is a great question because I've never gotten to, never have gotten to explain. No one cares about <laughs> this, this dirty little joke I have in my Instagram bio, but it's actually from um, a Frank O'Hara essay on personism. Um, and I love Frank O'Hara. I, I don't know if people here are fans. I really recommend his poetry um, made uh, briefly famous by Mad Men, where John Hamm's character is, is really emo and depressed, and he's reading um, Frank O'Hara. Um, 
but he's, he was this amazing, amazing poet. He literally had hundreds, maybe thousands of friends. He was so social. Um, friendship was a form of the lyric for him. And I think he worked at, he worked at the, 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 the MoMA maybe. Um, I don't remember. And he used to go on these long walks during lunch and he would kind of write poems um, all over the place, like on napkins. One time he was taking the ferry um, to I think a reading um, somewhere maybe in Staten Island or something like that. And there was he was going to this reading, this poetry reading, and this guy um, who was reading before Frank O'Hara had spent like weeks and weeks and weeks on his poem and Frank O'Hara written it on the ferry and he performed it like a minute later and like killed it. Um, but I loved him because he was so glib and he didn't take anything seriously. And he, unfortunately, he died tragically. He was struck um, by a car uh, or, or like, a, like a, some kind of taxi thing in um, Fire Island. Um, but anyway, the whole point is like he written this uh, manifesto and most manifestos are so serious. Like if you read the a manifesto by the futurists, they take themselves really seriously. That's like the most constipated writing you'll ever read. Um, but Frank O'Hara was like the opposite and he wrote about how, um, you know, he was like, I. He was like poetry, um, you know, like is, is like the lucky Pierre between like the reader and like the writer. And he wrote about um, how um, he wasn't sure if, um, if true poetry indulged in the nostalgia for the infinite or nostalgia of the infinite. But anyway, I love this idea that a poem is between um, the reader and the writer um, and that it is something that happens to people like a secret um, rather than some kind of sort of, you know, lauded um, mystical thing that's like shrouded in secrecy and locked away in a vault or something. Um, and I don't know, and I was like, maybe my writing could be a lucky Pierre for, <laughs> I don't know, someone and someone. Um, so <laughs> that's why I put it in there. Um, it's actually, there's no reason. There, it actually doesn't make any sense why I have that in my Instagram bio. I feel like most Instagram bios don't make sense. <laughs> I also um. just was like, I don't want my bio to be professional. That's so boring. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I really, I, I'm probably going to wrangle the idea that Frank O'Hara had in mind when he described Lucky Pierre, but I do feel that way about your titles and your endings mm -hmm. and how they bookend your stories in Tower Heart, for example, but also in your poetry and in your nonfiction. And I really love your titles. I think it's amazing the way that they transform in meaning across <laughs> a story, like in a Thank really you. haunting way. Um, and Maybe that's not even a question, but... <laughs> Thank you for the compliments. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not going to pursue that line of questioning because <laughs> I really want to talk about... We've got eight minutes left, and I really want to talk about um, teaching because mm. you've taught creative writing at Iowa, but also with high school students mm. and at community colleges and currently at Columbia. Yeah. And I wondered what you have learned about writing through teaching. Yeah. It's interesting because it's changed so much in the last 10 years. And the thing that is, um, I think the, the thing I'm finding 
really interesting and maybe a little bit scary is so many of my students now, um, I just taught a nonfiction workshop at Columbia um, this past semester, um, and so many of my students, they were so smart and so interesting and so creative, but they were so like afraid. And I think it's because they're all on social media and they all um, have seen the ways in which a line of writing can often be discussed and um, criticized and, or not, it's not even criticized, it's more like a, a, a decision can be made about sometimes a single line of writing that is orphaned from its original text um, and the meaning of it is decided by a, a, whatever group on social media gets to decide that and like there's a critical mass and everyone decides this is what that line means and usually they decide it's, it means something very bad and the person who wrote that line must be um, destroyed completely. Um, and I think a lot of my students get really afraid where they're like, well, what if I write something that isn't perfectly feminist? And I'm like, great, like, go for it, like, try it out, like, you're just a student, like, at, at the very least, you should be able to try things out that aren't perfect when you're a student, isn't that the, isn't that what literally learning is? How can you arrive as a perfectly formed human already? Um, no one is that, and I think that's something I find really interesting and really, really hard because so many of them are, are afraid, um, and I think, you know, I don't think a single good joke has ever been made by being super polite and respecting, like, social norms. Like, you know, like, jokes are, a f like, a lot, humor is offensive. Um, ideas, a lot of amazing new ideas are offensive or strange or startling. Um, and I think, like, the one struggle that all of my students go through is, like, Will I be criticized for for writing this? Um, will 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 I will I and if I am, will I get another chance to um, write something different or try again? And I think like that's what I feel really quite lucky about that I have been able to make mistakes and be able to grow um, and also be able to try something that's absolutely like stupid and imbecilic and then like be able to try again um, because that's part of writing too. And I think also um, that so many, especially young girls, have been told over and over again that the most interesting thing they can write about is their own trauma and about the worst thing that has ever happened to them. And sometimes that's really hard too because sometimes like, I don't know, like, that is not, that's absolutely not the only thing that like a young woman has to offer. Um, it can be one of the things, um, but that's not a requirement. And so that's something we're also like grappling with um, and, um, you know, constantly talking about um, in my classes with my students. Hmm. And because you also started out writing online, but do you feel like that wasn't something that was as pronounced for you? I think the like sort of the, the the capitalistic machine of like churning out sort of like 
this hap this horrible thing happened to me. You know, um, essays yeah. in the first person, often written by young women who, honestly, sometimes it's like people are writing about horrible things that have happened to them and they haven't even processed them in their own lives. And then they're turning it into art, into writing for the world to process for them. And like internet, people on the internet are not the kindest processors. And, mm -hmm. and it's very hard to put yourself out there um, and for about something that you are just coming to terms with and then have the horrible nightmarish chorus of, of internet voices telling you what they think about your own experience. And I think that was not quite as pronounced for me when I was in grad school, um, it, you know, in, in like 2006, 2007. I mean, maybe it was starting to happen, but I wasn't aware of it, and I didn't feel pressure to do that. Um, and I also felt like, I don't know, like, I mean, I think that's why humor is also really important to me because I, I, I don't, um, I don't want to be, I, I, I don't even the the worst things that have happened to me, um, it's like with some time and distance, I don't have to be like utterly morose about it. I can like laugh about it, and I do think that when you're able to laugh about something. It, it doesn't mean you process it completely, but it, I think it means at least you have a little bit of distance um, that it's not just a blistering wound like in your life that you're you know, opening up to the world. Um, we'll be taking questions in a minute, so if you want to start lining up, you can. And I've got one last question for Jenny. Um, you've said before in interviews around Sour Heart that there were, I guess, a set of questions that you were examining as you were writing mm. around, I guess, what it means to be born into a debt that you are paying off mm. and um, questions about childhood as well. So the idea that I mentioned before, but like how you form an identity when everyone around you is also trying to give you one. Um, and you can see those and you feel those concerns being examined in the book amongst other concerns too. And I'm just wondering what questions you're grappling with now in the work that you're working on currently. Ooh, wow. Stumped. <laughs> um, <laughs> what are the questions I'm grappling with now? I think I am, I don't know if this is coming out in my writing, but I think I am grappling with you know, um, for so long, my identity seemed to be formed by the the painful experiences I had gone through, or um, my identity was so much tethered to this feeling of not belonging, to this feeling of not being inside, to this feeling of always being in between, always being um, unfit, always being um, othered. And I think, it would be so disingenuous now for me to say that is still purely my life because um, in some ways I am still an outsider, but I'm also very much inside and I've been granted in a lot of ways a lot of acceptance um, and I think sometimes you're kind of like, who, who am I without this ancient pain that has like, <laughs> you know, been part of my mythology of self? Like, who am I even now? Like, what am I? Who am I? What do I 
do now because that ancient pain, as painful as it is, was always was also like a comfort because that's just how you know, I related to the world. It, it soaked through all my interactions. And now it's like there's new pain, you know, but also it's like the, the difficulty of letting go of that old pain because it, it, it marked me and made me feel, you know, you know, just disgusting and wretched. But it also like gave me like meaning if I'm being honest. And now it's like, I'm, I'm floundering a little bit. And so I think I'm interested in, in that, in, in the, the pain of stability. Um, <laughs> um, and and um, I'm also interested in, uh, like, I'm just also interested, you know, all these stories are about familial relationships and I'm kind of interested in writing more about romantic relationships. Is that all the time we have? Yeah, that is all the time we have. <laughs> thank you so much, and thank, thank you so you. much, Rosebell. Um. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.